Well, as, uh, as the kids are leaving, let's, uh, let's continue to worship, uh, and, and we're going to come before the Lord again, because I need to pray. Gracious, loving, all-powerful, amazing, glorious Heavenly Father. God, I am humbled. I am humbled that uh, you would work in my heart as you have this week through your word. Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see the words that you have written. You would give us ears to hear the message that you have for us. You would give us hearts to respond to your glorious gospel, your incredible invitation to come to you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this world and that we get to dwell on the reality of what that means. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in our hearts, drawing us, pointing our eyes to Jesus. I pray all of this for the glory of the Father, in the name of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I want to start this morning by asking a question, and the question is this. Who do you have room at your table for? Who do you have room at your table for? This, this idea of welcoming people to our table, of sharing a meal with somebody, it, it paints a picture. It paints a picture of, of serving other people. Because to welcome somebody to our table... To welcome somebody to our table is to say, come, let me serve you. Because it takes extra work, doesn't it? To, to invite somebody over, to, uh, to share a meal with them. It takes extra work. We have to prepare more food. We need to uh, perhaps even maybe change the menu that we had already anticipated because we found out about dietary restrictions or, or preferences. Um, we have to set out an extra spot. We have to make space, perhaps even rearrange the table that we normally have to have other people, right? We have to, to put out another spot. Perhaps, you know, we found out, oh, they have more people in their family than I was expecting, and we got to set up another table. There's work involved when we invite people to come to our table. Because, so it gives us this picture of what it looks like, what it means to serve others from a place of humility. To say, come and sit at my table is to say, come, let me serve you. Let me serve you. So with that in mind, let me ask you again, who do you have room at your table for? Who do you have room at your table for? Who do you have room to serve who do you have the capacity to rearrange things to serve their needs? Or maybe a, a more appropriate question would be, 
why should I even make room at my table at all? Because if everything that I own is mine and my life is my own and I am the master of my own domain, then what purpose is there in me serving somebody else, of making space for somebody else? But here's the thing. The stuff that I own is not my own. My life is not my own. I am not truly the master of my domain. And all of that is made abundantly clear in what happened just about 2,023 years ago. It's made clear by the sheer gravity of what the true king, ruler, and creator of the cosmos orchestrated. What he arranged when he willingly confined himself. Not only as a human, and not only as a human infant, which is just unfathomable in and of itself, but going so far even as to confine the very hands that crafted the cosmos within swaddling clothes. Just like dwell on the reality that limitless God limited himself. Because Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, willingly humbled himself so that those who were outside of the walls could be brought in. So that those of us who were hungry could have a spot at the table. So that those who did not have a home could be welcomed in, so that we who were weak could be made strong and called to go and do likewise. So, as we move one Sunday closer to Christmas, one Sunday closer to celebrating the incarnate God come as an infant, we can, as we continue to look at what it means to be a blessing to those around us. We looked this morning at the idea of eating together, the E in our acronym, bless, eat together. But as we consider eating together, it's important to zoom out to see that, uh, like has already been said, eating together is more of a picture of a greater calling to hospitality in general. To a greater calling. So when we talk this morning about eating together and hosting at the table, Consider that more like shorthand for this idea of serving others, of showing hospitality, a shorthand of spending of ourselves in the service of others. So this morning, we come specifically to the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll invite you to turn there in your own copy of God's Word this morning. If you do not have your own copy of God's Word, feel free to put your hand up. One of our frontline volunteers would love to bring you one. That is our gift to you uh, this Christmas, God's Word itself. So uh, feel free to put your hand if, if you need that. Um, 
But before I read the text, just a little bit of context for us. Thus far, in Luke's telling of the narrative, we have seen the foretelling of the arrival of John, who would later be called John the Baptist. And the fanfare around his birth all centers around the reality that that he is to be the one who will prepare the way for the coming Messiah, prepare God's people for the coming of their Savior. Not only that, but Luke has also recounted the surprising circumstances around the coming of that very Messiah himself. And it's from this point that we get to Luke chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7. And so uh, I will invite you, if you are able, to please stand with me for the public reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear the Word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may have a seat. In these words here in our text, We have the story of how Jesus, the Son of God, the one through whom the cosmos was created, took on flesh and came into the world. And when we sit and we dwell in that reality, it can can almost be too much to bear. When we start to comprehend the glorious reality of the limitless God becoming, willingly becoming limited, it is a glorious and overwhelming reality that really is at the crux of the whole plan. It's in these seven verses here that we get to see the when, the where, and the how of the coming of Jesus. We look first to verses 1 through 3 for the when. Verses 1 to 3. Here, in these verses, Luke dates. He dates Jesus' birth. Uh, Verse 1 tells us that it was during the reign of Caesar Augustus, who we know through historical records reigned from what we now refer to as somewhere about uh, 27 BC through to about AD 14. That was the reign of Caesar Augustus. So we've narrowed it down in the span of human history. to those years. But then, verse 2, he narrows it down even more by naming the registration. Now, there's a little bit of discrepancy here um, when it says uh, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, because we know uh, of a Quirinius being governor of Syria in about 6 AD. So there, there is some question and there's some discrepancy. Uh, it could be that what 
the, what it's saying actually isn't that it was the first registration. It could be saying it was the registration before he was governor, or there's another possibility where Quirinius was actually governor twice. Either way, it narrows it down to about AD, what we now refer to as AD 1. Okay? Anno Domini 1. So we have the when, when Jesus was born. Verses 4 and 5 show us where. We see here that though Joseph and Mary lived up in the north, in Nazareth, in Galilee, Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. And having traveled the 150 or so kilometers, they were exactly where God needed them to be to fulfill the prophecy that he had sent hundreds of years earlier through the prophet Micah. And what's so incredible about this is that in these short verses... We get a glimpse into the reality that God, in order to fulfill his promises, literally moved an entire empire around. He put it into the mind of Caesar Augustus to create a census in which he called everybody to go to their own hometowns, moving the entire empire around so that this young girl from backwoods Galilee would travel 150 kilometers from Nazareth down to Bethlehem so that the promises of God could be fulfilled. That's how much rearranging God was willing to do. And so around AD 1... In the small town of Bethlehem, Jesus is born. Jesus is born. And then finally, and here's where we'll spend the the vast majority of our time this morning, in verses 6 and 7, we see how it came to be. We see how it came to be and how it happened. Look at the text, verses 6 and 7. I'll read them again for us. And while they were there, in Bethlehem that is, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no place for them in the inn. Truthfully, much could be and has been said and written about these two verses. But I want to hone in on two specific aspects here this morning. Two specific aspects, specifically from verse 7. The first showcases Jesus' humility. The second, Jesus' hospitality. His humility and his hospitality. First, he is wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, I don't know where things are at these days in terms of infant care. Uh, I know that things change regularly, uh, but when my kids were born, they told us that we should swaddle our kids. I've heard from people since then, the nurses in the hospital stopped telling them to swaddle their kids. When my kids were born, we swaddled our kids. And I don't mean to brag or anything, but I was a pretty darn good swaddler. Yeah. In my house, I took the, the, the lion's share of the swaddling work. I had a way of wrapping that blanket so that those flailing arms could be contained. Uh, now, to be fair, I own, uh, I owe all of that to one of the amazing nurses uh, who was at the hospital when my oldest Mackenzie was born, who took the time to teach this young, ignorant, brand new dad how to properly do it. But here's the, pro- the thing for Mary and Joe. They were not afforded that luxury. They weren't given that opportunity. They had to figure it all out on their own. But really, 
With this simple phrase, there are some pretty dramatic implications. I said earlier, but it bears repeating. What Luke is telling us here is that limitless God, the one who created everything, chose willingly to limit himself. And not only limit himself as a human, which is crazy, at least to our finite minds. And not only as a human, but as a human infant. And not only as a human infant, but as a human infant that is bound by strips of cloth containing his very arms. Just sit and think about the reality of the limitless God so limiting himself. How incredible is that? Now, you might be asking yourself, how can you be sure that all of that is packed in to those words? I can say that because we can interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so uh, keep your finger here in Luke chapter 2 and flip over with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This passage in Philippians could somewhat be said as, uh, as a bit of a parallel passage, so to speak, to Luke chapter 2. Because when, well, Luke gives us the physical outworking of what happened in space and time, the Apostle Paul in Philippians shows us the spiritual and theological reality of what is happening while it's being lived out in space and time. So listen as I read for us Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So, Paul says to the church in Philippi, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here we get to the, the main portion here that I want us to hear. Verse 6, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. See, when Luke tells us that Jesus was born and wrapped in swaddling cloths, and laid in a manger, all of what Paul says in Philippians is packed into that. All of what Paul unpacks in Philippians 
is packaged. It's swaddled up in that, those, what, one, two, three, four words. That's incredible. We see in Philippians 2, verse 6, that Jesus was equal with God. He was of the same form as God. To put it in the words of the Nicene Creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Jesus is God. And let there be no question about that. Jesus is God. But verse 7 shows us that he chose to empty himself and take on the form of a human. Here we see the reality of his limiting of himself by becoming a human. It's also worthy of note that verse 8 tells us he took on what? The form of a human. The very same words that are used of, of his relation to the Godhead, the form of God, are used of his humanity. He is fully God while at the same time simultaneously being fully human. This is something for us, our finite minds, to have a hard time getting around, but it's an important truth and reality that we can believe and know because he tells us it is true. God, Jesus, fully God, while simultaneously being fully human, just as human as you and I. It's incredible. But Paul continues to show us the way in which Christ humbled himself by being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Even to the point of death on a cross. Why did he do this? The answer to that is implied in verses 3 and 4. He did it because in humility, he counted himself, he counted others more significant than himself, looking to his own interests, namely the glory of the Father, but also to the interests of us who were outside the family of God. Those who could never be reconciled to God on our own. In other words, Jesus humbled himself by confining himself in human form to save the world. To save the world. We need only to have faith that his death and his resurrection are sufficient. And friends, here this morning, they are. It is sufficient. Okay, flip back with me to Luke chapter 2. The verse goes on. It says that he wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room for them in the inn. There was no place for them in the inn. This is the second aspect of Jesus' birth that I want to focus on. The, the reality that they are forced out of doors. They're forced out of doors. And this is a theme that Luke hits uh, pretty significantly and pretty regularly through uh, these first couple chapters of Luke in this narrative of Jesus' coming. In Luke 1, 26 and 27, we see that Jesus will be born to a woman who is outside of wedlock. Later on in chapter 1, verse 80, we read that the prophet John, who will prepare a way for Jesus, is out in the wilderness. Here in chapter 2, verse 7, we see that Jesus is born outside the walls of the inn. And in the very next verse, verse 8, we read that the first people to hear the magnificent glories of, of this coming are where? Out in the fields, outside the walls of, or the, the, the boundaries of the city. 
Friends, Jesus willingly limited himself so that we who are outside the walls could be brought in. We who are outside the walls could be brought in. He came as one who is outside so that he could make a way inside. But the picture that we get from Jesus' coming here in Luke chapter 2 is not uh, the image that we get from those old Kool-Aid commercials of the Kool-Aid man busting through the walls. Right? That's not the image that we get. He's more like the master of the house who willingly comes outside to welcome in the homeless, the hurting, the hungry. And he welcomes them in and he says, come, sit at my table. Through his birth, we see that Jesus is the ultimate host. The ultimate host who welcomes us in and bids us to come and sit at his table. So let me ask you this morning, have you received his invitation? Have you taken Jesus' offer to come to his table? And if you haven't, why not? Why not? He bids you to come. He bids you to place your trust and your faith in him because his death and his resurrection are sufficient to cover your sins. He is faithful and able to save you from the things that keep you outside the walls. Or perhaps you have accepted his invitation. Praise the Lord. I am so glad for that. In light of his hospitality that he has shown to you, he bids you to go and do likewise. To go and do likewise in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. Just as he emptied himself for us, he bids us to give of ourselves for others. To serve them as he has served us. To welcome them to our table as he welcomed us to his. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Flip over to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 12 and 13 say this. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So what ought Christ-like hospitality to look like? It looks like compassionate hearts, compassionate hearts that care with care and concern for those around us. It looks like a spirit of kindness. It looks like patience or willingness to bear with others who may not do things the way that we do, might not say things the way we would say them, might not act in a way that we would act. 
It looks like considering others over and above ourselves. And it looks like actively seeking out forgiveness. In other words, except for maybe the forgiveness part, it looks like treating others the way Jesus treated us. Treating others the way Jesus treated us. Now, here's my guess this morning. That there's not a single one of us in this room who look at this list and hear this list and think, nah, that's a bad idea. That sounds like a bad idea. We shouldn't do that. I can almost guarantee that we would all look at this list and say, yes, that's exactly how I think I should be. But why don't I do it? Why don't we? I think there's one primary reason that we don't live this out daily, and it's this. We forget the gospel. We forget the gospel. We forget what Jesus has done for us. Now, when I say we forget the gospel, I don't mean forget like I forget where I put my keys. That's not what I mean. I mean that we, to forget the gospel means that we've taken our gaze, our focus, our primary intention and reason for doing each and everything, each and every moment of the day, we take that off of Jesus. More often than not, when we take it off of Jesus, we put it on ourselves. We put it on ourselves. And that is where the result of that is selfish ambition and vain conceit. So from that one primary reason, we often end up with two hindrances to hospitality. That's the one primary reason, but there are, I, I see two hindrances to hospitality. The first one is this. We're not willing to rearrange things. We're not willing to rearrange things to actually do it. We say, yep, I would, I would love to invite my neighbor over for a meal. But here's the problem. Monday night is hockey, and Tuesday night is ballet, and Wednesday night is prayer encounter, and Thursday night is small group, and Friday night is family night, and Saturday night is date night, and Sunday, well, by Sunday, I am just so tired. I can't even imagine doing that. Right? But here's the truth. We make space for what is important. We make space for what is important. So maybe we need to ask ourselves what is really important. And maybe this bristles a little bit, but maybe, just maybe, we have to ask the question, is the future really going to be ruined if we miss hockey or ballet for like one week? Right? Is that going to ruin the future? Or maybe family night on Friday this week doesn't have to be just our immediate family. Or feel free to put whatever breakdown or mix-up that you can think of that actually applies to your context in. And if this is you this morning, let me encourage you to remember. Remember the rearranging that God was willing to do when he moved an entire empire around just so that he could fill, fulfill his promise of bringing the Messiah, the Savior of the world, into this world, and he did it for us. And he did it for us. 
That's our first hindrance. We're not willing to rearrange things. The second hindrance that we often face when it comes to hospitality is this, that we, we're just too full. We're just too full. We have no more capacity. And just like the inn was too full to house Joseph and Mary, our lives, our minds, our whole existence is so full that we have no room to serve. We have no room to welcome people to our table. Heck, it's hard enough to just like get our family around the table because we're so full of stuff. Because that's the reality. We're full because we've, we've filled up our lives with so much stuff, with work, with extra, extracurricular activities, with the cares of the world, with family, with social media, with uh, fill, fill in the blank, with whatever else comes to mind. When you try to think about the reality of serving others, whether that be sharing a meal or whether that be comforting somebody who's in mourning, be it hosting a friend for the weekend or caring for an, a, a parent in their old age. If you're here this morning and you are too full to go and do what Jesus has done for you, if you're too full to show hospitality, then let me encourage you to remember, to remember that Jesus, Jesus was not too full for you. He wasn't too full for me. He always had time to care for those who were cast off. He always had space to serve those who need him. Jesus, he has room at his table. He has room at his table for you, for me. And so he calls his people to make room at theirs. To make room at theirs. I began this morning with the question, who do you have room at your table for? Who do you have room at your table for? And I want to, I hope and I pray that as we've engaged with God's word and as the Holy Spirit has worked in our midst this morning, that perhaps the answer that you had originally when you came in here, and I asked that at the very beginning, perhaps that answer has changed. But I want to finish with, with a different question. Who does Jesus have room at his table for? And we've already answered the question, right? The truth is, is that Jesus has room at his table for anyone who would come to him. For all those who come to him. Because Jesus came to earth, because he was born of the Virgin Mary and he lived a perfect, sinless life and he died on the cross to take the punishment for the sins of the world, because he did that, because he rose from the dead and is now seated in glory, all who come to him are welcomed. All who come to him are welcomed. So let me ask you again, have you come and if not, what's stopping you today? I believe that God has so arranged things so that you are here this morning. 
just like he arranged an entire empire to bring Mary from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. He's arranged things for you to be here this morning. Perhaps to hear for the first or the thousandth thousandth time that Jesus has room for you. And he wants you to come to him. He wants you to come to him. If that's you this morning and you're thinking, yes, yes, I want to accept that invitation. My encouragement for you would be to talk. Maybe perhaps you came with somebody. Feel free to talk to them. They would love to tell you about who Jesus is and how you can indeed accept that invitation. If you don't have that, feel free to come to the front at the end. Our elders and some of our pastors will be here. We would love to talk with you further about that. And brothers and sisters, those of us who have accepted that offer, that I want you to hear this morning that you are still welcome at Jesus' table. You are still welcome at Jesus' table. He still has space for you. That's the glorious thing about Jesus' table, that as many people as come to sit at it, it's never too full. I had this thought this, uh, this week. Uh, I was thinking about this you know, motif of table. My mind pictured uh, da Vinci's you know, painting of, of the Last Supper. And like the joke that often people say is, you know, what did... That uh, was the last thing Jesus said before the Last Supper, and it was everybody around this side of the table so we can take the picture. Because um, it's odd, right? This perspective, they're all around one side of the table. Now, I don't think, I have zero idea whether or not da Vinci meant this or not. But one of the images that we can get from that reality, that they're all around one side of the table, is that there's still space on the other side for all who come to Jesus. For all who come to Jesus. There's still space at his table. And it's from the posture of being at the table and following Jesus that he tells us to go and do likewise. To open up our table, to show the hospitality that he has shown to us. Now, speaking of coming to the table, we have the absolute pleasure of partaking in communion this morning. And just by way of reminder, we, here's why we take communion. We do it because Jesus taught us to do it. Because Jesus said so. See, on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus sat with his disciples. And they sat at the table. And he took the loaf of bread or the flat bread and, and he broke it as his way of using that to teach his disciples that his body was about to be broken for them in service of them. And then, after supper, he took up the cup, which was filled with wine, and he said, this cup is like my blood that's being, going to be spilled out for you, in service of you. And so, even to this day, 2,023 years later, we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup as our way of reenacting, of living out, of remembering the glorious hospitality of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who willingly limited himself into human form that he might serve 
us. Now here's the thing. Because of the significance of what is being remembered, because of the significance of what is being remembered, the Bible is very clear that this is a table for those who have already accepted the invitation. This is something for followers of Jesus to remind us of what he has done for us. We must be right before God to come and partake of the table. So if that's not you this morning, it's okay. We would like you to to be here with us, but if that's not you, then this isn't for you. And that's okay. Allow it to be a further picture in your mind of what is being lived out. But if that is you, then in just a moment, the band is going to play a song. And as they're playing, we invite you to come. To come to the table. Uh, We have four of them. Uh, And so if you're in the front here, we've got the two up front here. If you're in the back sections, we've got the two back sections there. And we're going to come as a reminder that we are called to come to Jesus. And then after, so you're going to come, you're going to get your elements, and then you're going to go back to your seat, and you're going to hold on to those elements. And after the song, we're going to partake of them together. But I also want to mention that if you're here this morning, and you have mobility issues, and it's just a little bit too much for you to get up and come to the tables, that is okay. We would love to serve you in that. Okay, so if that's you, please put up your hand and uh, either myself or uh, our, one of our elders, Wayne Baxter, will bring the elements to you. Okay, so if you are unable, uh, throw up your hand and we will, we will come and serve you. Okay, let me pray. I'm going to pray for the bread and the cup and then the band is going to sing. Gracious Lord, it's amazing what you've done. It's amazing. Thank you. Jesus, for your body that was broken for us. Thank you for the blood that was spilt on our behalf. Our perfect, spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you that we can come to this table and be reminded afresh and anew. Holy Spirit, fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To you be all honor and glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.